You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. In the seat back in front of you, there's a Bible. If you don't have one of those, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and just take that with you. And if you do have your Bible with you, uh, open with me to Mark chapter 1. We're continuing working through um, the book of Mark, really verse by verse, or maybe better said section by section, of what that is. Um, Last week, Jesse spoke of Jesus' authority over um, you know, the human heart, over sickness and disease, over the spiritual world. Uh, and, and this week, I want to continue in somewhat on that theme, uh, but I want to show man's response to Jesus. This is really an interesting thing as I was reading it this week. So we'll start off first by reading, and I'm uh, going to try to keep this short um, intentionally rather than waste your time this morning, because there's really just one thing I want you to grab. Mark chapter 1, let's start in verse 29. Jesse read this last week. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law laid ill with the fever and immediately they told him about her. You know, it's interesting how often he keeps saying immediately. What we understand is that the book of Mark, most scholars believe, is that this is actually the apostle Peter's eyewitness account given through Mark, because we understand that Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. So what most scholars believe is that this is an eyewitness account passed on. So he's kind of listening to him as he's jotting out what he sees. So we see immediately, immediately, immediately. And you'll also see that at times, if you're reading any of the other Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They really tell the same story, but yet one guy takes 16 chapters, another person takes 24, Matthew, I think, takes 28. So it kind of stretches it out in multiple ways because of this eyewitness account. But Mark, what most scholars believe, is the, most, um, um, the, the closest to the original date. It's the eyewitness account of Peter. So he's saying immediately, immediately, I can just imagine he's sitting down as he's sketching out this story of him recounting what happened. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and he began to serve them. Verse 32 says this, that that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is wild. This is one day that we start off beginning to see in verse 21, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. And this whole day begins to happen. Jesus heals a man at a synagogue who's oppressed by demons. And then the next thing you know, he goes back home. He raises up Peter's uh, mother from a fever. And, you know, it's, it's one thing when you get a fever when you're a little kid. You know, it's got to pop some Tylenol. When you're older and you get a fever and you start to realize this is bad news, it's a little bit different. So this, his mother gets healed of this thing. And Jesus kind of takes a little bit of a break. And the next thing you know, how would you like to hear, what's that noise outside? Next thing you know, you hear some kind of knocking on the door. You open it up, and there's a bunch of demon-possessed people going, Hey, how's it going? <laughs> that, would be quite the, that would be quite the evening. You're in there, you're just kind of eating dinner. Next year, you're like, somebody at the door? The whole city's standing there, and it's a bunch of guys, a bunch of women, full of demons. And they go, can we talk? I, I can only imagine that. So what we understand from Luke's account is that the scripture says, and Jesus laid hands on them all. So Jesus begins to pray and heal and deliver them from demons and heal all of these sicknesses. 
till sundown, past sundown. They come at when the sun's setting. So when is Jesus finished? We don't know. Sometime after midnight, maybe. He's just going at it. And then what does verse 35 say? And, ver- and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So here we have the whole city comes to him at night, and Jesus is up all night praying goes to sleep, I guess, for some period of time, and then rises very in the early in the morning to pray. Verse 36 says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town that I might preach. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogue and casting out demons. Now, this is really interesting, because as we read the scripture, if you want to just do a very, very easy exercise... Often you'll look at the disciples and think, I would never do that. I would never be like them. I would, you know, you see Peter, um, you know, cuts a guy's ear off that's coming after Jesus. And he cuts the guy's ear off because he's coming after him and trying to take him captive before the crucifixion. Well, I would never do that. One day two of the disciples are with Jesus and they're saying, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We kind of look back at it and think, well, they're kind of a little bit crazy. What's interesting, though, is uh, I was reading this past week. There was actually um, a murder that happened some time ago. It was in New York City. And there's, you know, some of the speculation which took place. But most reports say that it was almost a dozen people that heard this woman crying out uh, with screams, that she was being stabbed, and that all of these people heard. And they kept hearing, and they kept hearing, but nobody did anything. And there's this whole, you know, study over what it means And if you walk past and you see somebody there, and if they're not doing anything, then you feel almost, well, I don't have to do anything. There's no obligation. You know, sometimes we kind of look at the disciples and we're like, well, if I was there, I would do it differently. You know, Jesus, at the end of his ministry, right before he goes to the the, the cross and gets enemy, he's praying, and they fall asleep three times. And I kind of look at it, and I'm like, really? I would never do that. But the truth is, very easy exercise when you read the Gospels. Jesus is God. We are the disciples. They're just average humans. So what we see in this is that Jesus is up all night healing, delivering, and the next thing you know, it says this, and they rose and Simon went to look for him. Meaning what? Peter kind of looked back. Simon Peter's like, man, we had a great night of ministry. You know, Jesus is doing something, so what I'm going to do? I'm going to sleep in tonight. So it says that he searched for him. What's interesting is that we see in the book of Luke, chapter 4, in referencing the same story, the gospel of Luke says, that they, when rising early, they went to find Jesus, and that as he said this to them, he said, Jesus, we want you to stay with us. Verse 42 says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving. Luke chapter 4, verse 42. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So the story we have here that Jesus comes to this town, and I don't even really know if we have a word to describe it, because I think, uh, you know, the word revival is so overblown. But the entire town is at this doorstep and is healed. The disciples sleep in. The next morning, they go to find Jesus. They're like, where is this? We've got to do this again. Now, processing through that first century mind and understanding that at the time of Jesus, shortly before and shortly after, there's almost a dozen other people, it's about 11, that claimed to be the Messiah. Now, in this framework, they had no idea that Jesus was going to um, come and die on the cross for their sins. 
You know, we have a tendency to kind of look back at history and in so we read our experience into their understanding. We think, well, of course, you know, Jesus healed the sick and then uh, died on the cross, rose from the dead for our sins. But that's not what they were thinking. My best guess, and I don't just think it's a, a guess, I think it's a, a pretty good hypothesis, is that they were in this moment realizing we have the Messiah. When they think the Messiah, though, they weren't just thinking somebody that rise from the dead and forgive sins. They were thinking that this is the new king of Israel. That this is the guy that's going to set everything straight. And the best part is, he doesn't have to even fight anybody like everybody else. All of the other messianic figures at the time that would claim to be that would rather together an army of some sorts, this rebel army that's actually the word that's used at Jesus' crucifixion. These rebel armies, this revolting thing. And in that moment, they must think, this is it. We got the king. And not only is he just trying to convince people, he's doing it. He's showing somebody, hey, you have no leg. Let me just grow that out for you. But, you, know, you, you, you don't have eyes. Let me heal you. Not just let me give you a little chiropractor adjustment. Let me heal you. In that moment, I can't imagine that. They fall asleep. They wake up the next morning. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And they're thinking, this is it. We're set. They go to find Jesus. And it says they wanted to keep him there. Isn't that interesting? Wanted to keep him there. I was thinking about that. Jesus' response goes, we have to leave. We've got to go to another village. Because the reason I came, the, the reason I'm here, is that I can preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. The reason I came is not to just transform one village. The reason I came is to transform the world. I was studying this past week, and I thought to myself, as I preach this, I'm going to sound like a complete lunatic because this is what the Bible's saying. I can imagine that. In that moment, we think, wow, we've got a really good pocket here. God's doing something. But Jesus is saying, no, I didn't, I didn't come just for a city. I came for the world. I came to restore everything. I have good news here. It says they wanted to keep him. I look at this in my own life. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. But this reminds me, really, of my own life. When I see God do something... I just want to keep it right there. I look back at the way that he may have um, met me in a service or in a time of prayer or study, and I think, man, life was so good back then, this nostalgic thing. If I could just you know, crystallize that moment, just hold on to it, life would be perfect. If I could just control it. It says that they wanted to keep him there, but yet Jesus' response is, no, I've got far bigger plans. This morning, I want to look at what it means to control God. What it means to control God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, this is the story of King David bringing back the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. We'll start in verse 5, and we're going to have to tackle a couple Hebrew names, but don't worry. I've been studying up, so um, how about I just read, and then you can try your best to pronounce them as we go through. I'm kidding. That's always that. Um, this would be a great one to, to name your kid, Lebo Hamath. So... Uh, no, verse 5. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebohamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all of Israel went up to Bela to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah to bring up the ark of the God, which is, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadah and Uzzah and Ahio. 
were driving the cart, and David and all of Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. In verse 9, this is where the story kind of turns in a hurry. When we came to the threshing, the threshing floor of Chindon, Yuza put on his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and it struck him down, because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And this place is still called Perizuzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom and the Gilead. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in the house three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. I looked at that story, and my first response was exactly like David's. Maybe you had that response. God, really? You killed somebody for touching the ark? And my first response in that moment is really one of two things. First, I want to think, no, that's not real. That didn't happen. Honestly, I want to think that that's just somebody's, uh, you know, just kind of, they're just exaggerating that story because I don't want a God like that. You know, who wants a God that's, that kills somebody for touching an ark? You know, I like second chances. I like third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. When I do something wrong, somebody else does something wrong, I don't really like second chances. If I do something wrong, I like multiple chances. And when I read that, first thing I thought is, you know, I don't like this. Does anybody else not like that? My, my initial reaction is like, not a big fan of this God. You know, and almost at first I want to say, you know what, I'm, not, I'm so much not a fan of this that I don't want that God. We see this, this is David's response. David goes, you know what, I don't want this, I'm angry. I don't want the ark. Give it to some guy named Obed-Edom. Give it to him. Put it in his house. I don't want it. I don't want that God. See, that's my initial response until you understand what's happening here. Because at first, we think in our human finite ways, I want a God I can, tr- can control, don't you? I mean, really, don't we look at life and say, this, I want a God that I can control. When something goes wrong, God, make it right. Uh, when something breaks, God, can you fix it? You know, like your car goes up and you, you're outside praying for your flat tire. Like, that's the kind of God I want. I want the genie in the bottle. And, and when it doesn't go my way, the first thing I go is, I'm angry. God, why aren't you doing what I want? Why did you kill somebody for touching an art? I mean, that's, to me, you got a little bit of a temper, a little bit of exaggerated, need you to pipe down a little bit. Just say it. That's my response. And I, I, I bet it is yours too. See, when the disciples came to Jesus... And they said, listen, we got something going on here. I want to keep you here. And when Jesus goes, no, sorry guys, we're moving on. I can imagine in that moment, they're like, no, 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 you don't understand this. this. This is good, God. What you're doing in this moment, this is good. And he goes, no, 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 you can't control me. Because listen, as much as we want a God we can control, the truth is he loves us too much to let us control him. Why? The scripture says this back to our story in First Chronicles. And it says they were driving on a new cart. There were two people that were driving this cart. Now, what we understand in the, in the scripture is that God only wanted the Levites, the priests, to carry an ark, not to put it on a cart. 
And in this moment, there's two people that drive this cart. Uzzah, and it looks like Ohio, but with an A. Ohio. And these two guys are driving this cart, and the text says that they're celebrating. They've got trumpets and lyres, and not lyres as in angry people, but they've got instruments and harps and tambourines, which anytime a person brings a tambourine to a church, that's usually a bad day. Back then it was a good thing, right? All right, now somebody brings a tambourine, they're like, easy. So they're like always offbeat, and they're like, da-da-da-da-da, right? So they're, they're just having a party, and they're thinking, this is it. We're going to throw a celebration for God because his presence is coming back. And this is, this is going to work. This is it. And on the way back in, this is great. And these two men built a new cart. And as they're coming into the city, the, the oxen stumbles. And in this moment, I'm just saying because I do believe in God's sovereignty, I don't think it was just an accident that ox stumbled. I think God's just like, I'm going to trip up your plan just a little bit. Have you ever had him do that? Have you ever had God do something in your life where you recognize, I can't control all of the elements. I have in my mind this beautiful picture of what God's doing in my life where his presence comes back into the city and this huge party and God's going to come down and it's going to work. Then you realize life doesn't work like that. Not only can you not control God, you can't control life. Uh, You might not have oxen if you do. I'd love to come over sometime. But you find out that in life, uh, oxen stumble. Things go terribly wrong. Why? This, This world doesn't work the way we want it to. These two men driving the cart, Uzzah's name means strength. Ohio's name means friendly. These two guys driving this cart and an oxen stumbles. And at that moment... The ark is going down, and Uzzah, like anybody in that moment, I believe, would have done, reaches out. The only reason he reached out, though, is that he didn't understand what he was carrying. He shouldn't even have been riding on a new cart. He shouldn't even have built one. In that moment, it's falling. He reaches out. That moment, he should have said, I shouldn't even be here right now touches that he dies. And in that moment, it says this, and David was angry. Like I said, I would be really angry until I recognize this. This is where the gospel is in this text. God loves us enough. He will not let your strength or your friendly nature allow your relationship with him to be built on that. He's not going to let your strength carry the relationship. So in a moment we think, no, I'm angry about this. God, why won't you let life work the way I want? Jesus, why won't you stay in this village? Let me just keep you here. Life would work. And he goes, I love you too much to let you control me. Why? Because sooner or later, you're going to fall. Sooner or later, you're going to fail. So what I have to do is allow life to cause you to stumble so that you recognize that who I am has to be the centerpiece of your life. We recognize that the story in Mark chapter 1, it's not about Jesus having a bad day or being narcissistic. It's recognizing that when we control God's will, we miss out on a greater purpose. Because my real simple you know, proposition is this, what if Jesus would have stayed there? In that moment, in the way life works, if, they would have, if Jesus would have stayed in the village at that time, it would have been great. It would have just, everything would have been perfect in that little bubble. 
Come home, it's like, ah, man, I forgot the bread. Jesus, poof, thank you. Having a party, can you just multiply these fish? Been there, done that, sure. Anything you need. Just imagine what that would look like. And not in the moment, that's what they're thinking. This guy, do you realize we could have this here? And Jesus goes, no, you're missing the point because the human mind can only process chronologically as far as the eye can see. We think, you know what, I'm going to take this new job and everything's going to work out. And then that new job doesn't work out the way we want it. Or we're in a relationship and we think this relationship's going to be everything. It's going to be perfect. And then it stumbles, it falls. And we start looking at it and we're going, God, I'm angry that you're doing this. And through that circumstance, he's trying to say this. You're only angry because you value your strength, your ability, and your capacity over him. The anger there at first is going, God, why can't I control you? And he's going, listen, if I let you do that, you're going to wreck everything. See, Christ, the Ark of the Covenant, goes into the house of Obed-Edom. He's a Levite, a priest. Has to be in the God-ordained process, what this thing looks like. People that recognize, what did the Levites do? They weren't, weren't allowed to work. They wore these linens, um, garments. where they weren't, they weren't allowed to be engaged in you know, human affairs and activities like the rest of the, the other tribes. Why? Because their work was to rest. This, is, this excites me. It really does. Their work is to rest. What did it mean to be a Levite? What did it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Our, our work, our effort, our strength is not to control God and to build a new cart for him. Our effort is to rest in what he's accomplished. He's fully satisfied and fully controlled. God loves you too much, far too much, to let your strength or your ability to, I don't know if the word schmooze is even appropriate. If that's a, if that's a, carries different connotations. I apologize this morning. He loves you too much to do that. I know every single one of us has either come through a situation like that. Right now, maybe you're, you're on that new cart. You're just loving life. God's doing everything you want him to do the way you want him to do it. And it's perfect. And you've got a party that surrounds your life. You've got some guy that follows you around with a tambourine. Everywhere. Life's just perfect. I can promise you, there will come a time when that cart stumbles. And it shakes. And it's in that moment. It's in the moment of shaking. It's in the moment of testing that we recognize is our faith and our ability and our strength to follow God is our faith, our ability, our Christian walk built on our ability to be friendly to God and our emotional connection and affection and devotion life and whatever that comes to when something goes wrong. Have you ever been there when it goes wrong? The first thing you say is like, God, what did I do wrong? The moment we start looking, what am I doing wrong? Or, or when something goes right, man, what am I doing right? i got to keep up this spiritual momentum. You know, you woke up early and it's just this day, like, perfect. It's like, yeah, that's it. I've got to do this every day. If I can just ride out this spiritual high, it's perfect. Get it down to a recipe. Build the perfect cart for God to sit on. 
we're like, yes, this, I finally can control life. God loves you too much. <laughs> the gospel is too good of news because it's abstract of us. It's outside of us. It's something that we can't control. It's something that I can't do. I'm not allowed. What is the gospel? I say this over and over, and I, I, I want this to resonate in your heart so much. Gospel is that God will not let us control him because he is outside of us. The gospel is outside of us. It's something I can't do. It's not what I do for God. It's the news of what God has done for me. It's his provision, his sacrifice, his way outside of me. It's news. It's not something I do. Religion says, if I'm just a little bit stronger, if I'm a little bit more friendly with God, if I could just negotiate with Him, God will not let you negotiate with Him. Why? Because He loves you too much. I'd love to just be like Chris Rock, say the end and drop the mic and walk off, but I have a few more moments. He loves us too much to let us build a perfect church service. My prayer for you as I close, as we go to the communion table this morning is this. To test your heart and ask, Lord, are you an ends, uh, are, are you a means to an end, or are you the end in who you, end in and of yourself? Am I serving you to get something from you? Am I serving you to uh, have life work out the way I want it to? Am I serving you because I want to have a better family, or because I want to be uh, rich and wealthy and happy? Or am I serving you as a means to an end? Or am I serving Jesus as the God that can say, go? Lord, I want to keep you here. And he goes, I want you to go. And we're going, I'm angry. Go. My prayer is that you would be so fascinated with the sovereignty and the holiness of God that he is working all things together for your good, whether you realize it or not. If it doesn't feel good in the moment, it's not because he's not good. It's not because his character or nature is faulting as if he's having a bad day and he's like kind of letting him down. Everybody else is good, but you know, you know, the Holy Spirit leans over to Jesus and Jesus is like, Father, we're really slacking on that guy. No, he's working all things for good. The only reason it's not good is because of our perspective. Maybe you've had a situation like that. In the moment, it goes, this hurts. Why is this happening? I don't understand it. Why? I would suggest it's one of two things. Either your perspective of God's nature and character, or you're trying to build a cart and control things. It's one of two things. He loves you too much to let you do that. Let's stand together this morning if we can. Um, Mark and um, the band, why don't you come forward this morning? for a few moments as we go to the Lord um, at the communion table. Have you ever been around somebody that uh, chews with their mouth open a lot? Are you a person that chews with your mouth open a lot? Do you want to secretly tell the person beside you that they chew with their mouth open a lot? And this is a great time. You know, growing up, my mom would always teach us, Jared, make sure your mouth's closed when you're eating. You can't talk and eat at the same time. I'm thankful that I learned that at a young age because it does get nasty. Conversations. You can't, you can't chew and speak at the same time. You really can't speak and drink at the same time. You notice that? You can gargle. 
As we go to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, it's a sign that when we eat of this bread, of this cup, when when we take it this morning, what we're saying to the Lord is, God, I can't negotiate with you. This is on your terms, not mine. When I take the bread and I eat it, I'm not supposed to go, but God, look what I did for you this week. It was so good. It was so great that I did this. When I drink, I'm not supposed to say, Lord, look at my efforts. This is so great. Look at my strength to you this week. I had a great week. Or look, look, at, my, look at my down week. And no, 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 no. That's not it. He loves us too much to let it be built on us because I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not, we're going to fail. That would be terrible news. The good news is he has succeeded. And you today can leave here trusting him to control your life. Some of, some of you here today, maybe you just live in a constant state like David of just being angry with God. That's all life looks like. It's just constant anger. Constant anger. God, why? God, why? God, why are you doing this? Jesus, won't you just stay in this little bubble here and it'll be perfect. Maybe you live in that constant state of it. And I'll say this, God is merciful enough to let you be angry at him. Until you come to your senses and realize, wow, God, maybe you're doing something. You know what? I'm kind of, kind of angry you just let that happen. But I'm recognizing that if that wouldn't have happened in that moment... Where would my life be if I controlled you? Where would my life be if I could keep everything perfect in this little box? I'm not saying, let me make one clarifying statement before everybody walks out of here and blames everything on God. God is holy and sovereign and perfect and working all things together for good. It's not an excuse for our laziness. I'm going to have to make that qualifying statement. That's not an excuse you do something wrong. Oh, God's in control. It's not an excuse at all. What I'm saying is that he works all things together for our good that are out of our control. He's given us such a little, little tiny piece. And maybe, just, just maybe, God's shaking enough of your life this morning to go, maybe I need to trust you for my righteousness because it's really not worth me trying to keep this whole thing up for too long.